0: Here's your host, Sakar Cowley.
1: Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, today I have the pleasure of uh, speaking with Sam Bates. Uh, Sam Bates is with uh, Trinity Capital Group and their company specializes in a lot of new uh, multifamily development uh, they have done several acquisitions of uh, B-class apartments within Texas, and they own a RV park as well. So they are an extremely versatile uh, um, you know, company comprising of uh, just about uh, 800 units right now. They have about uh, 350 under development as well. So today, I think uh, we're going to have some fun learning about uh, you know, the existing acquisitions uh, that Sam has done and also the interesting facts about uh, the Texas market and how they are branching out into new development. So with that, uh, Sam, thank you for taking time. Welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me on. And I look uh... Add value to all your listeners, and hopefully they learn something
1: from us. Awesome, awesome. So, uh, give us some background, uh, you know, Sam, as to uh, you know how you got started within real estate and how you formed uh, Trinity Capital Group uh, that you currently, uh, you know, sort of uh, do everything under that umbrella. Yeah, definitely.
2: I was a finance undergrad, and I thought I was actually going to get my master's in real estate, but after I graduated, I did an internship out in Los Angeles and I loved and I was at um at a investment bank and private wealth management firm and I loved the experience and they offered me a full-time job so I decided to take it and I for I I just put my masters on hold and then after a couple of years I wanted to move back to Texas mm-hmm. and I got I decided to get my masters but at that time I thought I was going to be in wealth management and putting portfolios together for clients through the stock market for the rest of my career. So I got a master's in personal financial planning and an MBA. And then when I graduated, the market had tanked and I started at a consulting firm and the work I was doing, I didn't enjoy at all. And, <laughs> and I quickly realized I wanted to get out of corporate America. So I started getting back into learning more about real estate and just going down that path and i did some research and found a group in dallas that i joined and they were in both single family and multifamily. and i was a limited partner in a one syndication back in 2010 mm-hmm. and i simultaneously started investing in single family um just because i was working a lot of hours and i didn't have a lot of time to put in a single family i only mm-hmm. could do one or two deals a year um, so I thought the multifamily syndication route would be the best way to go, sure. and we bought a deal. It was 208 units in Dallas, and what we thought was a prime location. And the actual submarket is pretty much a prime location, but there's pockets within the submarket that mm-hmm. um, I would classify as D neighborhoods. Oh wow! So mm-hmm. The syndication didn't go as well as I expected, <laughs> and. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for the market and just the price appreciation, we probably would have lost money on that. So I decided to focus on single family and just try to ramp that up. And I spent four years on that. And I did about 18 single family deals. I did fix and flip, buy and hold. I did um, a ground up development on Mm -hmm. a, a house. And I realized that while the returns could be great, you weren't going to scale like you could with multifamily Sure, and sure, was, sure, and it would be difficult to raise money. Um, so I actually was at a networking event with a guy who I used to work with at one of my consulting firms mm-hmm. and we decided to partner up because he was kind of in a similar situation. He had done single family and wanted to get into multifamily. And so for the next year, year and a half, two years, we looked at small multifamily deals, we tried to acquire them, but at that point, that was 2014, 2015, and then people were saying the market was gonna correct or turn probably in 16 or 17, so we were underwriting pretty conservatively, and mm-hmm. now looking at back at some of the prices that we could have bought deals at, it would have been a grand slam. Sure, Every day sure. of the week, um, right, but-, but after, trying to get deals and not getting them for a year and a half or so. My partner at that time knew a third guy who had real estate experience. He had developed a lot of single family homes. He had developed some commercial and dental offices um, since 92. So we brought him in as, as a group and we had our first development project was a 60, you know, apartment and then 10,000 square feet of retail space. And we wanted to do that as a test run to see if we could work as a partnership to see how Mm -hmm. successful we were. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that we brought a lot of complimentary skills to each other. Mm -hmm. and It just kind of took off from there. So in the last three to four years, we've done 12, we're on our 12th project.
1: Interesting, interesting, and 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 um, thank you for uh, such a detailed, uh, you know, background uh, description there, uh, Sam. And the nice thing about, I think, uh, also that you said that uh, there, uh, Sam, is that the first indication that had challenges, and if it wasn't for the Texas or the Dallas submarket in uh, in general, uh, it wouldn't have been successful, right? So, and, and you also mentioned there, uh, Sam, that. Uh, Within this uh, growing submarket, you still had certain pockets that were perhaps struggling, and you, in fact, used the word uh, "D-class" submarket, which typically we, you know, assign to uh, extremely impoverished or problematic neighborhoods of sorts, right? So, give us uh, give us some background on that deal, uh, Sam, because I always like to, you know, um, highlight the success, but at the same time. It's always, you know, beneficial for our listeners to know that it's not all roses and sunshines, right? I mean, there are so many bumps and challenges and there are certain syndications, if not done correctly, can really struggle. So I like to, you know, maybe dig into that story a little bit and understand, you know, what were some of those challenges uh, in the, in that syndication? And, you know, when you say D submarket, was that something uh, or D neighborhood, I should say, was that something you did not? Uh, uh, you know, correctly understand uh, going in initially that uh, it would be, you know, kind of considered a D and a struggling neighborhood of sorts?
2: Yeah, and the sub market overall, I mean, houses now, back then, they weren't selling at this price point, but back now, they're probably low end from 400,000 all the way up to over a million. And Mm -hmm. the, the sub market or the little niche itself was kind of apartment row and there's some pockets within that's that submarket that now that I've been in real estate for 10 years I know is bad. Mm-hmm. Um but the general partner on the deal at that time he had already had 20 years of experience mm-hmm. and I don't think he analyzed how rough that market was. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he had just started his own property management company and he was wanting to manage it himself. Mm-hmm. And when we got in there, he, his team didn't do well with the C, D, class tenants. Um, mm-hmm. We had gang shootings. We had a property manager steal from us. There's just a lot of things operationally mm-hmm. that should have been done better to make it run more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and the GP actually fired himself as a property manager. He brought in a third party. They couldn't do the job so we had to remove the general partner and then we brought in a third party property manager and two of the limited partners took over as a general partner wow Um, Mm -hmm. they were well one guy he was basically the cfo of the company that the gp had so he kind of stepped in and then we had a limited partner step in and they were able to turn it around but i mean we bought it for i think under 20 a door, I think 17 or so put in, put in all, all the renovations necessary to get it up to that standard. And right now it's, we sold it in 13, I think. Um, but right now it's trading at probably around a hundred thousand, the unit. Wow. Um, wow. That's so you <laughs> That's how
1: the crazy market is, right? Yeah,
2: <laughs> uh, tell just over that seven year period, how significant the market increased and, um, since the general partner was ousted, our, we had a bridge loan. Mm-hmm. So that was really the only reason we sold because if we could have kept it, I think it would have been a home run, but he wasn't going to sign on the note, so sure. we just had to sell the it was all the partnership interesting
1: interesting Uh, thank you for uh, you know mentioning that detail Uh, now Sam as you indicated right the market has become so hot and uh, you know sort of the cap rates have compressed as we all know the prices are just you know some crazy high right Uh, your company does uh, new construction as well right Uh, give us a sense of uh, you know what it is like to do the new construction or perhaps uh, you know what what sort of advantages you see uh, over you know the typical b and c class who, would you rather like do the new construction so i, I would love to you know and, uh, hear your perspective on that
2: yeah i think both acquisitions and new construction have their advantages mm-hmm. i think new construction at least from my perspective it's the better route to go it does take a lot of time like on one of the deals we're working on right now it's been literally over a three year process wow um, mm-hmm some obviously don't take that long but you have to go through planning and zoning which depending on the city or jurisdiction can take months to years to get approved sure um, mm-hmm. you have to the financing is a lot more difficult to get than just doing an acquisition but for us we can get a brand new asset with probably a better tenant base for sometimes a lot lower price per door now than what 1980s product is trained for in DFW. Um, right. mm-hmm. and Ours is more secondary and tertiary markets. So mm-hmm. we aren't getting the rental rates that a brand new class A apartment in Dallas would get, but mm-hmm. we're getting close and we're getting um, like in our three bedroom two bath in Kerrville which is 65 miles northwest of San Antonio we're getting 1600 1650 so you're getting quality residents that want a nice place to live
1: interesting interesting now I know there's there's definitely in such a hot market depending on how you look at it I think uh, and you rightfully said that uh, perhaps doing a new construction come, sometimes is makes a lot more sense and you can give a newer product at a extremely competitive uh, cost as well right and, and now uh, sam you uh, your company has acquired several uh, you know normal b class uh, properties uh, you know multifamily assets right uh, give us a sense of how do, did they come about? Uh, I mean, you shared with me earlier that you, you are a player in the other uh, tertiary markets uh, around Fort Worth area, you know? So you have, let's say, the Weatherstone and Co- Country Place uh, apartments there, right? So how did they come about? Like, how did you find the deals and you finance it and stuff like that?
2: Yeah, um, they've all kind of come about different ways, but it's all through broker relationships. Um, I see. Mm-hmm. We have. Two tertiary markets in Texas, and then one's actually in a suburb south of Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, Mississippi. I and see. Huh. The first acquisition was in Wichita Falls, and it came from a broker who I'd actually been friends with since 2010, even before we were doing real estate. and I see. Mm-hmm. It was a true off-market deal, um mm-hmm. and. I was able to get it at 8CAP, the seller, they had executed their business plan and they'd left a lot of meat on the bone. They hadn't mm-hmm. really strengths in two years. And it, it was a a no-brainer, honestly. Mm-hmm. But it was in Wichita Falls, which is about a hundred thousand. Um, it's Wichita Falls, especially that property, it's close to Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. So it was somewhat dependent on the military. But mm-hmm. I felt we acquired in 2018 and I felt like with the current administration and just that environment, the military would be a good place to, if a recession was going to happen, government spending wasn't going to change that much. And that base was, it trained F-14 or F-16 fighter pilots. So I thought it was going to stay.
1: That's an essential base for sure. Right.
2: Exactly. I see. Um,
1: Go, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, like, how much was the price for a door and how, how did you structure the deal uh, in the syndication? It was built in
2: 2005 and it was about 70000 a door. Um, mm-hmm. And we syndicated it and I did it where we could take accredited and non-accredited investors. Mm-hmm. The lowest investment amount I had was 25000 and we had to raise about $1.5 Mm-hmm. Um, so it was pretty straightforward and how,
1: how many units was that uh Sam? 48 so 48. okay
2: this mm-hmm. is a smaller uh project mm-hmm. but the capital raise was one of the easiest we've done sure. and um it's been honestly the easiest asset that we've bought <laughs> and managed right. um, i feel like it's true mailbox money and mm-hmm. i go up there every month check it out um, I analyze the financials. I have weekly calls with a property manager, but from just an operations standpoint, it's by far the easiest property we have.
1: I see, I see. Now, uh, give us a sense of, uh, you know, just the area, the tenant base, and it sounds like you have the third party property management, right? So during your asset management calls as well, Sam, like what sort of metrics and reports you're uh, looking at when you're speaking with the third party property manager?
2: Yes, um, I always look at occupancy, um, especially on the smaller properties, it tends to fluctuate because if mm-hmm. one person leaves, that could be a 2 or 3% dip in occupancy. Um, but I'm looking at occupancy, I'm looking at leasing traffic, how many um, people or prospects we have come in each week, how many phone calls, mm-hmm. um, what rates we currently have, if we need to change the rates on different units. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it kind of depends on the property and the situation that we're in. Like, a property that we have in Mississippi, we're starting the refinance phase, mm-hmm. and in that market, delinquencies are an issue. Um, Tennessee, there are mm-hmm. pay late. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm focused a lot more on that than I would be in Wichita Falls or Kerrville or even DFW. So I see, I see. It, it depends, but obviously occupancy, um, cash flow, work orders, things making sure that the property is running effectively and smoothly are important to look at.
1: Right, right. And uh, uh what about some of the capital improvements? Any like interior amenities uh you've improved uh or you know done exterior work in this? Give us a sense of some of the value add things you may have done. Um,
2: on all the value add projects we've bought, the exterior unit or the exterior of the property has mm-hmm. been pretty great shape. Mm-hmm. So we've went in and just updated the interiors. Most of them have been, they have either been built in 1996 or 2005, mm-hmm. so they were just out of date. So we're going in and doing the cosmetic upgrades essentially. Sure. But mm-hmm. Our biggest renovation budget has been about six hundred thousand and that's on an 81 unit. And then Mm -hmm. we have a 590,000 renovation budget on 137 units. So it's going in and just bring it up to 2020 standard. There's some that we have to do small expenses on the exterior. And like one of the properties was hit by a hell storm. So we're having to replace part of the roof. Sure. Um, Mm but we haven't had the huge go into a 1960 or 70 project for having to replace wiring uh, HVAC or chiller systems and plumbing, things like that. Right, right, right.
1: Now, uh, I know the kitchen and the common areas sometimes play a huge part into our value add, right, uh, Sam? So, uh, kindly share with us that, what does like 2020's kitchen look like for you and what sort of cost you're spending in, in those?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like it's pretty standard for kitchens now to either have black appliances or even stainless steel in some markets. Mm -hmm. Um, They want either the gray or the white cabinets. Most have handle pulls Mm -hmm. on it, which a few years ago, that really wasn't the case. Sure. Mm -hmm. Putting in backsplash in all units, Mm -hmm. either granite, um, quartz, countertops or some in some of the lower end areas you'll do you'll resurface the counters just to give them that granite fill. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. kind of dependent on the submarket but sure it is getting to be a standard. Put in vinyl plank flooring mm-hmm. um, and the cost associated depends honestly what you can get labor and then the materials it, it can wide it can vary greatly. Um, we've started importing a lot of our materials from Asia. So okay. we're getting big breaks on, and we started doing it for all of our developments, but we're going to start bringing it into our acquisitions as well. It's just hard to forecast because it will take eight weeks, sometimes 12 weeks to get product over. And if you acquire something, you want to start on the renovations immediately.
1: Sure, sure, but, sure.
2: Um, on like our latest renovation project, we're averaging probably about 4,500 a unit turn. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe 5,000, depending on the size. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in DFW specifically, I know some people are putting 7,500 per unit turn. Um, there's a couple groups that have 20, 30, 40,000 units. They're even sinking in 12,000 a year. Wow. So wow.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It, it depends on <laughs> kind of what all amenities you need to provide to that Sure,
1: market. sure, sure. And that cost, uh, Sam, is, Inclusive of uh, the efficiency or the co- uh, cost, uh, uh, you know, advantage you get by importing the material from Asia, or is that, uh, um, you know, that is that import thing like fairly new that you're doing?
2: Uh, we've been importing for over a year from Asia. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But um, the renovations from the acquisitions we've yet to import. Most of the, most of the. Appliances or um, fixtures or flooring, we've imported flooring on two. No, actually, all three of the renovations, we've imported some flooring and some of it we've had to use from outside vendors.
1: I see. So, So floorings, uh, fixtures. uh, I guess I assume black splashes uh, uh, are pretty much all imported. I mentioned, right? Yes. Uh, how about granite? Also, are you importing any granite? Yet? We are for our new
2: builds. Um, well, actually, not granite. We're importing quartz. Um, quartz. Okay, got like it. From getting you know, it from Asia, we can get quartz at the same price, or maybe even a little bit better than what we could get granite for. So mm-hmm. we felt like it's just the newer standard that people want. And, mm-hmm. We can get for the same price, we might as well import it.
1: I see, I see. So I, I would like to, you know, maybe perhaps ask a couple of questions around it. um Sam, is that uh, what sort of cost advantage you're seeing by importing? Uh, is it like 50%, 70%, 30%? Give us a sense of that.
2: Yeah, it depends on obviously the product, but yeah, we're seeing across the board 30 to 50%, and the quality mm-hmm. is better than what we could get in the US. I see. Um, or what we're buying. We luckily had some connections where we went over to China for two weeks and went to different factories and vetted the factories before we started buying the products. Mm-hmm. Um, just to see, because everybody over there has a different standard of quality control, and sure. we wanted to make sure that the products we were importing were a great quality. Right. And luckily, we were able to do that with that visit, and we haven't had any issues since then, Um, like once we got back, the tariffs Force of the China started. So the course we're buying is actually coming from Vietnam, but it's from the same group or the same company that we were gonna buy it from China. They just mm-hmm. moved to Vietnam.
1: I uh, see, mm-hmm. interesting, thank you for sharing that. And, and also Sam, uh, when you're buying these, right? uh obviously the material comes in bulk uh, so you have to kind of work through the issues of storage and you know sort of the uh, ticketing, meaning you know how much is going out the door, and making sure that uh, the correct amount is getting applied or used within your unit, and not you know the contractor is not like you know taking off and walking and taking it somewhere else and being used at you know some of his other uh, jobs and whatnot. So how, how do you manage all that uh, aspect? You know the storage and you know all of the inventory are associated with it.
2: Yeah, it, it is a process and you do have to have it planned out before you just start importing. Sure. Uh, even mm-hmm. if you have contacts over there. One of the harder, or one of the biggest issues, at least for us, is you have to pay 50% of the order as soon as you place it. And then before it even leaves the port over there, you have to pay the other 50%. So you're fronting that cost for four months sometimes, mm-hmm. before you even get the product. But we have a warehouse where we store all the product. Mm-hmm. And since one of my partners is the developer, he oversees all the contractors and oversees all the people that are working on his jobs. Mm-hmm. So, from an inventory perspective, we can keep count and keep track of what goes where. Mm-hmm. And we have about an 18,000 square foot retail or warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we can segment the different jobs into sections of the warehouse. So, it's a lot easier to keep track of. Um, then, if it was all lumped together, and you have a random GC or random um, sub going in there and pulling out material.
1: Sure, sure, sure. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that details, uh, Sam. There. And, and also regarding syndications, uh, Sam, uh, how are your deals st- structured? Meaning, you know, like LP, GP shares. If you are offering any preferred returns or waterfalls and things like that.
2: It, honestly, we've done. Quite a few syndications now. And they've all changed in various ways. Um, sure. mm-hmm. The First syndication we did was an 80-20 split mm-hmm. um, with no preferred return. We've done two like that. Um, we've now done a few 70-30 splits with an 8% pref. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on one of them we did we had to front six or seven hundred thousand front. so we did a 60-40 split. And, wow. mm-hmm. and our investors were completely fine with that and we took on all the risk upfront, front and we felt like we should be compensated from the back end, but they're still getting a return greater, or projected return greater than 20% IRR. So, they're
1: happy with that. Right, right. Those are handsome returns for sure. Uh, also, Sam, mm, now that we are in the midst of COVID crisis, now, right? I mean, uh, as we all know, I mean, lot of uh, jobs uh, for the tenants have been affected, or sometimes you know the hours at their work has been reduced. So uh, th- there are you know some of the ripple effects we are starting to see on our books as far as you know whether delinquencies or lateness and things like that, right? So uh, I'm curious to know your thoughts on. Um, like as we move forward, let's say we are into uh, like September, October, or perhaps year end, right? So when we are like looking at these deals, right, how do we make sense of the NOI, right? Because we don't know what what the stable performance is, right? So I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts as to, uh, you know, what, what how, how do you sense uh, like some of the deals and what's going to uh, transpire in the coming months?
2: that's that's a great question i wish i had a crystal ball <laughs> um, but i think i'd be i could become a billionaire if that was the case i i don't know i will say may or sorry june um, collections have been the worst so far that we've experienced in our portfolio mm-hmm. and i don't know if that's a trend that's going to continue or not but i feel like the longer covid occurs the more people are either away from their job or they've gotten furloughed or laid off, Sure. it's gonna affect the economy more significantly than it has in April or May. Like, I know everybody's worried about April collections and there's really sure. a small blip, if anything. Um, so if COVID continues or we do have a second resurgence, um, I don't know, October through December could be difficult. Um, I personally have underwritten only a handful of deals since COVID started Mm -hmm. Um, and my growth rate, I've reduced significantly. Um, Sure. Mm -hmm. Like some of the growth rates I had at 0% for year one and year two. Um, I I don't know exactly how it's going to impact and I've listened to quite a few people and with interest rates where they are where capitals leaving possibly the office space where capitals coming in from other I mean from other countries from even the coast with the, all the opportunity funds I think it sure. could even compress more than what they are now um, right. so underwriting a deal is very tricky and I, I that's one one of the reasons why we plan on not buying anything for the immediate and maybe even little foreseeable future because we just don't know where the market's going to go
1: no that that's very true i mean and and you rightfully said that I, I mean you know given as resilient the multifamily class is and obviously we all know what office and retail sector are experiencing right now i mean all of that capital is going to pour into multifamily so, I mean, already the hard situation of multifamily just made a lot more worse, I should say, right? <laughs> so interesting. And and did, did your group halt any uh, renovations or any like big capital projects uh, in this pandemic, uh, Sam, or uh, you were largely unaffected? We, we haven't halted really any
2: renovations um, for a couple of reasons. The two projects were, Currently renovating one. We're in the refinance phase, and we're mm-hmm. refinancing into a HUD loan, and mm-hmm. we want to be done with the renovations before we close the refinance. Mm-hmm. And we feel like we're sixty percent through, seventy percent through, so it won't be an issue. And then on the other project, we bit still been getting rent bumps, um, mm-hmm. so we're renovating units as as we can, and we've ordered product, and once We have like 20 to 30 units left before the product runs out. And once that happens, we'll reevaluate and assess if we should continue with the renovation program or stop. But at this moment, we currently haven't just because we feel like we want to still achieve that plan. Now, if we weren't getting rent bumps on the renovations, we'd definitely stop. Mm -hmm. But um, we have stop distributions just to have that extra cushion in the bank. If for sure. something that happen in October, or December, even next year, where we don't want to have to go back to the investors and ask for more capital.
1: I see. I see. Great advice. Great advice. Uh, also, Sam, your group is mainly headed by your three partners, right? Uh, give us a sense of, uh, you know, what is everyone's uh, sort of uh, strong superpower Uh, And, you know, how are you sort of uh, aligning uh, with each other and uh, doing different activities within your company? Okay.
2: Uh, One of my partners is Daniel, and he's been in construction since 92. He started out as a frame carpenter and has just built businesses. Um, So he handles our development side. Mm -hmm. And then the other partner, Michael, I met at a consulting firm, and he's a CPA. And he... Um, handles taxes and then he does a lot of investor relations and raising capital. He owns a Chick-fil-A so he has a lot of contacts through Chick-fil-A and other, other networking events that he goes to and he also looks at operations sometimes and I'm, I handle more of the finance, operations, banking, um, dealing with lenders, dealing with attorneys. So mm-hmm. that's how we've structured the the partnership. I'm I handle a lot of day to day things, sure. and they handle some some of the other.
1: Aspects. I see, and so acquisitions come uh, through you as well, basically, or mm-hmm. uh, or all three partners are combining on acquisitions.
2: I underwrite all the deals. Um, like last year, we closed on one acquisition. I underwrote probably. Well, at that point I'd underwritten 110 or so bills for the entire year. I looked at 170 and we acquired one. So Mm -hmm. it's maybe I underwrite too conservatively. Mm -hmm. Um, I would rather do that and not have the chance of losing somebody's money.
1: No, and actually, you're right, Sam. That I mean, I have heard the same sentiment from a lot of other investors as well that we are looking at 100, 125 to perhaps narrow down the five, and we're buying like one or two. So, your run rate is absolutely the same, like you know, you're looking at several, several hundred before you're buying on a few of them. So, definitely. Uh, So, before we go, Sam, uh, you are a seasoned investor and you have seen. Uh, you know many deals you have networked a lot Uh, what can you share the best advice to a lot of aspiring multifamily investors
2: one specific um, word of advice would be tough to give because that there's so many pieces to this puzzle especially if you don't have a team in place I mean if you don't have a team just on one acquisition, there's gonna be a lot of moving parts and pieces, mm-hmm. but I think at least what has helped me succeed is I'm a constant learner. I feel like I continuously read, people <laughs> learn, listen to podcasts, and I get ideas, or it just helps me learn and grow the business, and also networking is essential. I mean, sure. mm-hmm. some, some weeks, especially, obviously before COVID happened, but some weeks I'd be networking every night of the week. Hmm. And You just have to grow your network. You have to talk to brokers, talk to investors, vendors. Um, it's a continuously evolving space. I feel like over the last 10 years, multifamily has grown tremendously. And it's for a lot of reasons, but there's so many players that you need to be interconnected with a lot of people and know people. And, um, I think some of the deals we've gotten has just been through our connections. The Interesting. Some of the mm-hmm. land we've bought or got we would have never got if it wasn't through the connections we had so um, they they I know the cliche is it's more about the people you know than what you know um, sure mm-hmm. but I think if you can marry both of them together, it's going to be a lethal combination.
1: great advice, great advice wow you you added a ton of value uh, Sam uh thank you for all that uh, knowledge of yours and sharing with our listeners uh before we go tell our listeners uh, you know um, how they can uh, sort of locate you and learn more about your company
2: yeah definitely you can reach me at sam at trinitycapitaltexas.com or you can call me at 972-855-7654 And I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. I don't always get on it, but I usually respond to email or phone call a lot
0: quicker.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Uh, As humble as you are, uh, you have a wealth of knowledge and your curiosity to share, uh, you know, the nuggets of information is uh, absolutely appreciated. Uh, So I thank you uh, once again, and I look forward to, you know, many more projects uh, from you and learning more about them. So you've been a great guest. Thanks a lot for uh, coming on. Well, thank you for having me. And I look forward to speaking to you Hopefully more in the future and um, sharing more information than I have. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank
0: you so much. Thanks for listening to Premium Cash Flow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at PremiumCashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.